Wow, we are going to have a day full of great stories. To close the show, we're going to talk with Dale Howarchuk. He's got a few stories. Actually, he's going to give us a story about the 87 Canada Cup, about replacing Mark Messier on the final face-off, and then trying to figure out who between Dale Howarchuk, Wayne Gretzky, and Mario Lemieux was going to take that face-off. It was a nice problem for Canada to have. It worked out well. They ended up going down the ice, and they ended up winning the Canada Cup in 87. So Dale Howarchuk coming up much later on in the show. But as we are brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist, we want to kick off the show with more great hockey stories because we have with us in studio right now the first ever goaltender for the London Nationals. This is even before they became the London Knights. And really, it wasn't all that long ago, but Rocky Farr has been generous enough to come up to London each and every year right around this time and make some pretty incredible donations through the London Knights Alumni Foundation to organizations. And this year, the beneficiaries, the London Devilettes, the Southeast Bandits, and the London Blizzard Sledge Hockey Team, and of course the George Bray Sports Association. And we are thrilled to have Rocky with us right now. Rocky, thanks once again for doing this. Well, it's my, it's, it's, I guess, an honor and pleasure. We appreciate being able to uh, be in a position to give back to the game. And, and uh, my wife and my goal is to, is to really help, especially the uh, organizations such as you've named, who really uh, are, have a lot of needy families and children that um, don't have the resources, or a lot of times there are special needs children that are involved. Uh, that these they're all volunteer workers that that dedicate themselves to helping children and and so if we can help them financially like we've done it really we we feel great that we can be part of the organization. Well, your donations have been incredible, Rocky. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you would rather I say this than you say this because you are one of those people who who just gives so generously, but you don't tend to look for the fact that, hey, I I gave this. But to date, Rocky and Susan have donated $55,000 to support five local hockey organizations. So, hey, this community is grateful. Yes, and and again, this is in conjunction with the uh, London uh, Alumni Foundation, with the London Knights Alumni Foundation, and it's it's to be a, hopefully a small part of, of which is developing into being a big charitable giver, uh, the foundation uh, helping the community in different ways, not always just in hockey. Uh, my particular fund that was set up is for hockey, but uh, it's a way of hoping that we will be able to get other alumni members uh, to be involved in, in, in being charitable to the London community, whatever it may be, whether it's in the hockey side of it or anything else. There's a lot of other activities and, I mean, other sports, too, that are, are needed. So uh, hopefully that in time, time things have been coming along uh, between Rick Doyle and, and Phil Griffin, who have been actually uh, in charge of getting all this together. They've done a super job, and we wouldn't be where we are today. And unfortunately, too, that uh, both Mark and Dale Hunter um, are, are seeing that this is, this is be, be very, very, very available for the team itself and getting the alumni players and, and everybody else involved with with the charitable side. Well, you look at the tremendous alumni that the organization has, and you look at the connection to London. You have Mm -hmm. so many people who never lose sight of having, even if London was just a part of their life for two, three, four years, you never lose sight of this city. And the thing about it is, you know, again, I'm 
elaborate on this, but looking for giving back to the game. And, and I played for a lot of different hockey teams I did, um, but I wanted to find with history, and the history was, yes, I was the first goalie that played. But if you just survey the land, and you can, and you well know, this is a hockey mecca. I mean, I don't know of any other place, especially on the on the minor league level. I mean, not on the national league or the major league level, but there are these fans who are fantastic. They support hockey. They love hockey, and for me, this is something that is something that's going to continue on when I'm no longer here. And I wanted to make sure that I felt that where would be the best place to set up something that would go on, hopefully forever, type of thing. Again, being unrealistic, but and I couldn't think of a greater place in London. Um, and, and what the, the hunters have done here and, and built this whole organization. And the arena, I mean, it's just amazing what, what facilities they have and, and what is done here for, for the hockey. So I think that's just unbelievable to, to think. I don't think it be on the scale, but if anybody can be better, they're one of the best, if not the <laughs> best. Anyway, so. It is pretty amazing. We're talking with Rocky Farr on London Live to kick off the show today. Rocky will be making a Czech presentation in conjunction with the London Knights Alumni Foundation tonight as the London Knights take on the Niagara Ice Dogs. This is radio, so you can't see Rocky's face. But you know what? You have a flawless face. For a guy who was a goaltender... <laughs> At the time when masks were, they were they were just kind of coming into favor. How did you make it through with a flawless face? Well, Mike, what I did is that I was, as a goalie, I used to always crouch down, and so my coach taught me that if you see a puck coming at your face, duck down and let it hit the top of your head. So I have. If they ever shave my head bald, I get stitches all over the <laughs> top of my head. And that's the reason why I was able to protect my face because my the brunt of my head is where I took all my shots and stitches. So. I still can't believe you guys did what you did. I mean, you played pro hockey. You must have had pucks whistling by your ear. It didn't phase you? Well, you know, they. I guess back in my day, I always say the dumbest person must be the goalie. You know, they always <laughs> the goalies are always dumb, and that and that they. Uh, uh, but and the reason being is that who would want to stand in there and let these guys go ahead and just fire shot? And the, again, the equipment wasn't what it is today. So most times, you you came away with something that was you know you hurt somewhere, whether it was on your shoulder, arm, neck, or even your legs, because the goalie pads in those days were like shin guards. Uh, but that was kind of what I did. So it was a good pass through for me for my coaches to bend down and, and take your shots there. Now, were you a goalie who had to go out and practice, or, or were you able to say, okay, no, I'm I'm the game day goalie, and somebody <laughs> else can go out there and take the slap shots that they were learning to take? Well, for different teams, I was a major goalie. But back when I was playing at that time, the only time the regular goalie did not participate was just on game day. Uh, because they just, you didn't need to go out there. So the practice goalie was just on the practice and the day. But that was just a light workout. You know, you'd go out there game day and maybe skate around for a half hour. So it wasn't as if they were lining up and the guys were taking slap shots, which was really what changed the game as far as the slap shot is what brought in the issues as far as hurting the goalie because of the, you know, the velocity of the puck. Yeah. Um, so, but it was, at that time, it was fine. It's just the, the regular goalie always had to practice unless... Uh, you know, that it was on game day. So Bobby so, Hall had that much impact on the game. Because wasn't he the well, first one to take a slap shot? Or one of the fr- first think, to perfect it, maybe? I, yeah, I think Boom Boom Jeffrey on. I think he was the one. That, that's how we got the nickname. I think he was the first <laughs> one. But during that whole era, that's where it came in with Hall and, and, and all the guys started using the slap shot. Um, 
And the amazing part, in fact, I'll tell you just you've got a quick story. When I was here that, that year, um, that was the year also they didn't have a, a band on the curve on the stick. Right. And so virtually, you know, you a lot of the players, and actually I remember it was um, Freddie Stan, not Freddie, his, his brother played Stanfield, I forget his last name, but he, his hook was nearly, you, you couldn't believe that he'd even, you know, shoot the puck. But when he would take a slap shot, that puck would just like it was like a knuckleball where it would just drop. It dropped like 30 or 40 feet. He'd shoot it from center. It started up. Velocity would go up in the air and then just drop down and, and also for the speed. Uh, but at that time, like you say, the hook stick was – and then they outlawed it because it was – you didn't know where the puck was going. You could be 10 feet in front of the net. You would have a hook stick like that. It could be rubbed right up in the, over the uh, goalie's shoulder at that time or right up just quickly like that. So – that's that wild. Basis, you know. We're talking with Rocky mm-hmm. Farr. Rocky and his wife, Susan, have donated $55,000 in support of five local hockey organizations over the last three years through the London Knights Alumni Foundation. Rocky is back and will be making a check presentation tonight at the Knights game as they take on the Niagara Ice Dogs. Rocky, when when you look at the game of hockey and, and when you played, how much fun was that because the business side of it hadn't quite taken off yet? How much fun was it to be doing what you were doing? It was fun. It was fun. Yes, I, I, not knowing everything that goes on today, but back in when I played, there there were no restrictions as far as, as if uh, curfew wise, there was very few curfews. Um, in fact, you know, as I said to Rick earlier, when I remember we were on the road, we we're playing a game, and all the coach would say is that. Make sure the bus leaves at 8 o'clock in the morning. So whatever you do from the time the game's over until 8 o'clock in the morning is on your own. <laughs> so there, there wasn't any – you didn't have a cure for you to be there at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. And it was fun just from the standpoint, like you say, the, the flexibility, uh, being able to do what you want to do. We weren't under any type of strict schedule. Um, and that was even at the NHL level because you played with the oh, Buffalo yeah, Sabres. Yeah, so yeah, that was even the, the NHL, NHL level. The only time that, that where there may have been some restrictions if you had a long losing streak, you know, and the coach was mad at you. Not only did he make you do double shifts and, and practice twice a day, he may throw a curfew on you just to really make you upset because you knew that the regular is, I don't have a curfew. I'll do what I want to do all night. And come back. So, and then we didn't have the the publicity. The you didn't have the paparazzi, which I call them today. And so the reporters, basically, I mean, you did what you want to do. They didn't report anything. I mean, you could have been in a bar and been intoxicated, and and you know had to get a, somebody to take you home. Uh, but that wouldn't be in the paper the next day, which today would be full blown in the paper, and you'd probably be suspended and you know from from the game. But in those days, and it, it was it was fun. And at that time, they were Players were making decent money, but they were certainly not making any money that you could retire on. I mean, you always knew when you played that at the end of your career, you were going to find a job. So you want to think, start thinking about it towards your end of your career where you're going to work, uh, which I know today has, has, has changed a lot from a lot of the players. Most of them are financially independent, you know, playing three or four years in the National Hockey League. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think the business side, yes, make the big money, yes, today. But from the fun side and, and, and just the enjoyment, being able to do what you want to do um, is, is not there, which we had back in our day. Well, Rocky, yeah. it is great to have you back in yeah. town. Thank you so much again. The London Devilettes, the South and East Bandits, the London Blizzard Sledge Hockey Team, and the George Bray Sports Association, all benefiting from a third year that Rocky has supported local sports organizations in this community. Rocky, we can't Check. thank you enough. We'll see you again tonight. 
Very good. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on behalf of the foundation. Rocky Farr, making a donation tonight on behalf of the London Knights Alumni Foundation. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk about something that happened this morning. If you were at the Delta London Armories, you got a chance to see it. If you've seen pictures of it, it was pretty amazing. It's next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Thanks again to Rocky Farr for coming in. You'll hear from him again tonight on our night's broadcast. $55,000 in donations through the London Knights Alumni Foundation to area hockey groups, teams, organizations, and it's been very generous, and he's got all kinds of great stories. So we'll tell some more later on tonight on the night's broadcast on 980 CFPL. Giving, well, that's alive in so many places, especially at this time of year. This morning, this morning, unbelievable. Over $29,000 in donations, plus I don't think we could even add up the amount of money donated in toys to the Chorus Radio London Toy Drive, which was initiated by... Taz from FM 96, you hear him daily on the 96 take starting at 1230 on 980 CFPL. So that was just phenomenal to see. And thank you so much if you stopped by the Delta London Armories and you made a donation. The Christmas Kettle Campaign is certainly on and Christmas hampers are going to be delivered. The chair of the Kettle Campaign this year is a former deputy mayor in the city of London. You know him well. Please welcome Paul Hubert to London Live. Paul, how are things? Well, good. Boy, it was really something this morning. It was like standing beside a conveyor belt and just watching the toys walk in and, you know, families and businesses and kids and moms and dads. And the whole thing was just uh, so impressive. Uh, You know, I I was talking to, um, I think it's their third year and it's a, two young uh, kids and they make uh, Christmas ornaments and they sold them and they raised $600 and went and bought gifts to bring in. And just story after story like that uh, was really quite moving. You can actually get choked up. Um, I think Taz got choked up. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, just seeing it and, and people really stepping up. You know, one thing that I've said this uh, to you before, like London cares. And when there's a need in this city, uh, people really step up, businesses step up. And so uh, to all who have participated so far, a big, huge uh, thank you uh, on behalf of all of those who will benefit, not just at this Christmas season, but throughout the whole year. Well, it is amazing to see, like you said, it's a great description, a conveyor belt, because the toys come in and then they're collected up and they go out in trucks and they will be a part of Hampers. In terms of the Kettle Campaign, Paul, what do we need to know about the continuation of that into next week? Well, the Kettles will be out there until literally Christmas Eve, and we have 150 uh, volunteer spots available uh, that we would really like to fill. You know, our target is, is $550,000. we are we are pretty much on target. Uh, there's a little bit of shortfall, um, but um, we do have 150 spots. So if people would like to give two hours, 
we need 150 people to give two hours between now and the 24th of December, and they can do it two ways, Mike. Uh, they can call 519-873-2984, or they can go to londonchristmaskettles.ca and sign up to volunteer for a shift. And that it is made so easy on that website. It's hard to believe just how easy it is to say, okay, well, here's the shift, and then you, you walk away. That's that's it? That's that's all I had to that's do? It. That's it. And you know what? I was I was at Costco picking up some stuff yesterday, um, and I was talking to our kettle volunteer. And if there's nothing else that will lift your spirit, if you're feeling a little down, volunteer on a kettle. And, you know, ring a bell. Uh, smile at people, wish them a Merry Christmas, and you know what? You'll walk away uh, floating on a cloud. Isn't that amazing? Because that's that's something we don't really take into consideration quite enough, how uplifting it is to stop and talk to people at this time of year, to have them making donations to that kettle at this time of year, the conversations you have, Paul. It's, a, it's oh, amazing. It's, it's so fun. And some of these volunteers have been doing it for years and actually generations and uh, because this is probably the oldest fundraising initiative in North America we're talking 128 years there's been kettles going somewhere in North America yeah that's hard to top that it's a little tough you know, I know you and I are getting on in years but we're not that (laughs) far on in years (laughs) but here's the deal Um, so we need volunteers but if you want to see me, I'll be at the North Walmart up at Hyde Park between 3 and 6 tomorrow afternoon. Come by, say hi, drop something into the kettle, but please sign up and volunteer. Okay, and again, it's as easy as calling 519-873-2984. That's 519-873-2984. We have that number in case you're driving right now. Don't try and reach and grab a pen and write that down. We have that in studio. Just call our studio. Jacqueline has the number, and you can also go to London Christmas Kettles online. Paul, what was it that made you do it for the very first time? Well, you know what? In my life, I've been blessed. and when we have been given so much, um, we have a responsibility to give back. And uh, so, you know, being at a kettle is just a small little give back, but then I also get to see the impact in my day-to-day work helping people uh, return to the workforce of people who do have a need. And sometimes they they need that hand up and, and an opportunity And it's not about, and I've said this before, it's not just about the Christmas hamper and, and, you know, some food and some toys for the kids, but it really sends a message to those individuals that they're important, they're part of our community, and we see them, we see the need, and we care. And then those funds, by the way, support so many programs throughout the entire year. Um, The focus is often on Christmas, but... That money is critical to helping those people in need throughout our community throughout the year. Well said. Paul, thanks for what you are doing. And again, 519-873-2984 or London Christmas Kettles online. Paul, all the best if I don't speak with you during the holiday season. Well, have a Merry Christmas, and let's look forward to a fantastic 2019. Can't wait. Merry Christmas. Cheers. Paul Hubert. 
former deputy mayor and now chair of the London Christmas Kettles campaign with the Salvation Army. Again, they raised over $29,000 this morning, and that's just money. That's just money that was donated. And you had people who were coming who said, I had to make use of this for our family years ago, and now I want to make sure and give back. Just incredible stories. We have news coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle, and then we're going to talk about an election issue. In fact, we got an email about this. We thought we'd we'd get the info and we'd put it to you and see what you thought. We're going to do that in 10 minutes from now. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Have you seen the video of the guy at Hamilton and Egerton stealing the bike? Picture it. It's right out in front of anybody. There's traffic. It's actually taken on what looks like a, at least a, a phone coming from a vehicle or maybe even a dash cam. And you can see the guy stealing a bike. Doesn't take him long. But he's doing it in kind of plain view. Really? Really? This is what's happening? Plain view. You walk up, get through a lock, take the bike and go. Are there... Fort Knox bike locks. We're going to ask that question in about a half hour from now. Is there a bike lock that if you have a nice bike, you can go out, you can buy, and you can say, nobody is getting through this? Or is it like a house? If somebody wants to get in, somebody's going to get in. Best you can do. And every single specialist, when it comes to security, will tell you, If somebody wants to get into something, they will. Sometimes they fail. We were talking yesterday about the guy who wound up in the grease vent in the restaurant, was trapped there for two days. When he gets out, think think about life. You're worried that you're not even going to get out, that no one's going to find you. You're stuck there for two days. You never should have been there in the first place. Where did you think you were going? And then all of a sudden, you get out and you get arrested. But... When somebody wants to get into something, typically they will. The best thing you can do is make it annoying enough for them, hard enough for them, that maybe they go somewhere else. How's that for a statement? I'm going to make my part of this world annoying enough that you go somewhere else to commit your crime. That right here, that's not good. I'm going to go somewhere where it's just a little bit easier. That's the world we've lived in for a long, long time. So we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about bomb threat hoaxes. Enough of these. And still to come, Dale Howarchuk is going to join us. He'll have that Canada Cup story we discussed yesterday. If you didn't hear it yesterday, don't worry. He'll tell it, and he tells it much better than I ever could. Jaker's Dozen is coming up as well. We'll do that in about 15 minutes from now. But up next, we're going to talk with... A man who has kind of a a concern about something, or he's got something that's been bothering him. Rail Winberg is a Londoner, and we always say, hey, if there's ever anything that's troubling you, bothering you, let us know what it is. Even if we can't solve it, maybe we can, you know, at least raise the discussion. That's what talk radio is great for. Rail's going to tell us what's been bugging him. He'll tell us for how long it's been bothering him, and then we'll turn it over to you and see whether this is something that you think has merit and should be fixed. This is London Live and Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Whenever you have a question, please find a way to get it through to us. 
and we'll see what we can do. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. In fact, that just happened now. Rose just sent a note saying, haven't seen any information on Alex Formanton, who is with Hockey Canada and Team Canada for the World Juniors right now. He's a Knights forward. Do you know how he's doing? Alex Formanton got kind of tangled up on Wednesday night in an exhibition game, went down, and appeared to have a leg injury because he didn't put a lot of weight on it. Hockey Canada is being pretty tight-lipped about this. He was apparently seen on crutches. Um, They haven't said what the severity is, but that it looks to be a leg injury. They said day-to-day yesterday. Hockey Canada is due to announce their final roster. And there are London connections. Formanton is one now with an injury. Well, not sure whether or not he will be on that final roster. But you have Evan Bouchard and Liam Foody waiting to find out. You have Nick Suzuki and Isaac Ratcliffe, who are both from London. They're waiting to find out. So as soon as we start hearing those final cuts and can piece together that final roster, we'll pass that on to you. In the meantime, we got a note from Rail Winberg just a couple of days ago. And he brought up an issue that's been bothering him not just for a couple of weeks. It's been bothering him for a long time. And it has to deal with elections in Canada. So we invited Rail to join us on London Live to talk about what that issue is and then open up the discussion on it. Rail joins us now. Rail, how are you? I'm doing fantastic today, thank you. That's good to hear because I know there's something that's kind of been bugging you and I appreciate you reaching out. We always say if you have something that is bothering you that you can't figure out, let us know and at least we can have a discussion about it even if we can't exact change. So, Rail, this will deal probably with the next federal election the next time we see this. What is it that is bothering you? Well, what's bothering me is the fact that we, the people on the West Coast, get to vote with the knowledge of results coming through from the East. This has happened in federal elections as far back as I can remember, and it's bothered me maybe 30 years. I I can't recall exactly. And I've done stuff. I've written to the newspapers. I've spoken to MPs. I've Um, In fact, I've spoke to a prime minister, um, Joe Clark, and, you know, there's always been a reasonable response that they see what I mean, but nothing still be done. And this is the point that I'm making. As far as I'm concerned, when you vote, there should be an equal playing field for everyone. No one should have an advantage when you vote, particularly federal elections, how important this is and and what is, is has been happening for all these years is that the results start coming in from the east coast and the west coast have a distinct advantage particularly those that are um, unsure about who they're voting for if they start getting an idea maybe there's a a turnaround oh we'll change our vote I'll vote for someone else and if that's the case then to me that's not a legitimate election, and I, I, I think something has to be done. Was former Prime Minister Joe Clark one of the ones who said, yeah, I see your point, but then didn't necessarily go anywhere with it? Well, it was on a talk show, and I can't recall if it was before he was Prime Minister or Prime Minister, but he, he his comment was, oh, I see what you're saying, but so what's the difference if one person sends calls a cousin in on the West Coast and gives them um, uh, the the results. 
And I said to this man, I said, are you kidding me? You mean it's okay to be a little wrong? Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm just, I can't believe you're saying that. As far as I'm concerned, it's, if one person changes their vote in an election, then there's something wrong with the system. And, and you know, this it can be avoided so easily. Rail Winberg joining us as he tells us something that's been bothering him for 30 years, and it deals with the fact that polls close at different times across the country, kind of like the sun going down as it goes across the country. And as Rail says, if this means one vote, sometimes we see elections decided by one vote. If somebody's taking a peek to say, hey, what are the results so far before I head off and cast my ballot? It wouldn't take much to say, okay, we have a uniform time that at 8 o'clock Eastern time, 5 o'clock Pacific, this is when things shut down, right? I think that's the point. There are two two ways of doing it. They can legislate that no results um, are um, shown until the West Coast close. That makes common sense. Or change the... um, the, the time frame for the voting in the different time zones, which some people will say will be unfair if, if it's uh, uh, earlier on the West Coast. But at the moment, if you look at the regulations, the times aren't all exactly the same from 10 till, or from, uh, 10 till 8 p.m. They, are, they vary across the time zone. So those two alternatives would be very easy to do. But nothing has been done. They talked about blackouts, but we know that's not going to work now with the, with the media. <laughs> anyone can let anyone know. Absolutely. And you would think, because the politicians are the ones being voted in, that they wouldn't want any advantage. They wouldn't want something that maybe started sliding away from them to continue sliding if even a few people took a look to see what the results were. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that you've brought it up to politicians and haven't had much of a return on it. Well, um, recently, uh, actually, um, uh, our MP for London West, Kate Young, was very kind to um, to, sit, uh, to let me sit into a discussion with her, and um, and she's obviously uh, being a politician. She couldn't comment directly, although she she liked what I was saying. But she was um, she had a conflict of interest uh, for for whatever reason. But she has passed on my information to the Department of Democratic Institutions or something, and I haven't heard back from them, but I'm not waiting. And, and I, I believe during our conversation, she said she doesn't see a problem speaking to the media, even though I've spoken to her and asked her what she can do about it. But, um, but, but I'm, I'm pleased that at least I've gone to a current MP and we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Well, Rail, thank you for raising the issue. We'll throw it out there and see what everybody thinks. Before we let you go, you had an appearance on Dragon's Den. Everybody always wonders what it's like to be on Dragon's Den. What can you tell people about what the behind the scenes is like? Well, I think that's the exciting part about the um, opportunity to be on Dragon's Den. But one has to know that it's purely entertainment. Like I went on the show, uh, I I actually um, uh, uh, did my audition in London and I was one of four Londoners to go through to be taped in Toronto. And we had this amazing, I had a, a pitch and it was an amazing um, uh, opportunity in the den, and I got three offers, and I ended up with a hench. I shook hands with Jim Treleving on a phenomenal deal, two hundred and fifty percent more than I was asking. 
and it stops there. <laughs> and I believe 90, 80 to 90 percent of the deal, the handshakes in the in the den don't go through, aren't um, um, uh, finalized. So it's purely entertainment, not purely entertainment. There are phenomenal deals. But the point that you made, the behind the scenes was phenomenal. I had an amazing producer who helped me through the whole process because uh, I had a, a team. I did a presentation. Uh, my product was just a concept, another beer, more people ask for or are offered another beer more than any other beer. Would you like another beer? So I created this product, another beer, and pitched it, and I got three of the five dragons interested. In, and uh, Kevin O'Leary was on the show. This was back in uh, 2013, but it was the, one of the most exciting experiences, especially to get a deal, <laughs> even though it meant nothing in the end. But it was a man, uh, magnificent experience. Rail, it's been great talking with you today. Thank you so much for bringing the election issue to our attention. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, and the best to you, too. Rail Winberg, talking about polls not closing at the same time across the country. If you have any thoughts on that, if you have any feedback on that, email me. Mike at 980cfpl.ca, and we can start up that discussion. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We're going to take a quick break, and then coming up next, Jake Jeffrey's going to slide by. We'll talk about his Jaker's Dozen. You can find the Around the OHL podcast right now, a brand new one, where we talk about flipping things into the crowd and whether or not that should be punishable by a suspension. We also look at teams that could get hot in the OHL. This is a podcast that comes available every single week and it's available right now at apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your favorite shows jake will come by and talk some ohl hockey with us before news with jacqueline labelle this is global news radio 980 cfpl a little bit of sunshine breaking through in downtown london is it going to be a white christmas i don't know i don't know it's starting to look green We haven't had any big snowfalls in a while, but that's okay. Coming up after news with Jacqueline LaBelle, which you can hear in seven minutes from now, we're going to be looking at bike locks. Is there a Fort Knox of bike locks? That's the question we will ask. And if you go to at Stubbs980 on Twitter, you can see a video in about 30 seconds of what we will be talking about. It's amazingly bold. Can't believe this guy did what he did. Right now, joining us in studio is a guy who actually has today off, but he's been nice enough to come in and talk. Jake Jeffrey. Jake and I do the Around the OHL podcast each and every week, and on Fridays we get a chance to outline a couple of stories from Jaker's Dozen, which you can find at AroundTheOHL.com. Jake, welcome back to work. Thanks, Mike. Uh, looking like another exciting weekend. I had a couple good matchups I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, definitely. Anything that, that stands out to you in terms of what's been going on this past week? Yeah, there's a handful of things. Obviously, there's that uh, people shooting pucks over glasses after whistle, and apparently that's uh, been catching on. There's been three people in the last three weeks that have had suspensions because of it, so that's something I'll look into as well in my uh, Jaker's Dozen segment. You can see uh, on around the OHL.com every Friday. 
There is a former London Knight that we should mention, and that is Nick Matten, who's now playing for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Before the season, uh, 14 goals in 169 OHL games. You know, he was never known for a score anyway. He's a big, solid defenseman. This year, he's got 11 goals in 31 games. So, I mean, he's definitely increased his offensive production. One of the many overage defensemen in the OHL who've done so this season. And I think there's going to be a lot of teams calling calling for uh, him come trade deadline. He's a two-time OHL champ with Hamilton last year and with London a few years ago. So I think he's a guy that, you know, those teams who are looking just to make that one ad on the blue line, I think he'd be a guy that I'd be targeting for sure. The entire Jakers dozen will be available on AroundTheOHL.com. What else can you kind of hint at for us? Well, we'll go from overager to some young 16-year-olds who have definitely made their mark early in their OHL careers. So Quinton Byfield, you know, first overall pick. He was expected to, to kind of come in and, and really adjust nicely to the league, and he has. 23 points, 25 games, 10 of which are goals. Cole Perfetti also is, you know, a highly touted, skilled guy. He's got 13 goals in 25 games, but a guy that's really kind of snuck through is Jacob Perot. The Sting took him almost at the end of that first round of the draft. He's the uh, son of Yannick Perot, the former Leaf and NHLer. He's got 14 goals, 25 points in 27 games. So what a pickup he has been for the Sting. And it's pretty amazing. In junior hockey, when you have 16-year-olds, you can usually see the really young guys on the ice because when you hit 18, the man's body starts to take over. You start to thicken a little bit. And so a lot of the 16-year-olds are, are pretty evident. They're, they're still trying to figure out the pace of the game. But when you watch Jacob Perot play, If you were to put him on the ice and then grab somebody and say, let's play a game, spot the 16-year-old out there. And if he was the only one out there, you'd be looking around going, I don't don't know. I I don't see one. I have no idea what you're talking about. He is that good. And they have to rely on so much else other than their strength, you know, because they aren't going to out-muscle too many 19-year-old, 20-year-olds in this league. And uh, if you heard our podcast this week with uh, Hall of Famer Dale Howardchuck, we talked to him about that. And he says one big thing you notice is instincts. And that's something that Pro has. You look back at, I mean, 16-year-old seasons, Mitch Marner, to put it in for context as well, here at the Knights, he was taken at the end of the first round, similar to Jacob Pro. He had 59 points in 64 games, 13 of which were goals. And that is a very good 16-year-old season. So I was know, on a veteran team. Exactly. So these three guys, they're kind of, you know, up there with really top 16-year-old seasons. It'll be interesting to see if they can keep that going, which I think, you know, all three can. And it'll be interesting to see just where their OHL careers and from there on goes. Well, we will hear a little snippet of that interview yeah. with Dale Howarchuk a little later on on London Live today. Anything else before we let you go? How about the Greyhounds up in Sault Ste. Marie? They have won the West Division for the last five years, and they have an eight-point lead out in the West Division as of right now. So they could be poised for a three straight, third straight West Division title and a team that was supposed to be rebuilding. Uh, I don't think they'll be doing that now. Well, they have some excellent mm-hmm. stars, and a lot of times, if you get that system going, and we've seen it here in London year after year after year, if you have those young guys who are learning, it's not like, well, the names that I know are disappearing, and so this team is gone. There are new names who step in that you learn pretty quickly, and they have some guys. Cole McKay yeah. is a name that you have to get to know. He's having a sensational season, and they've got a really underrated defense core. I think so, too. It's it's deep, and they have those guys, you know, as a fan, you think, oh, he was like a sixth, seventh defenseman last year. What's going on? It's because he was just waiting in the wings for his opportunity, and the team was so deep prior to that. And if you can get those guys ready to just step into that role and hit the ground running or the ice skating, depending on which metaphor you want to use, and then that's that, that's that's you know that's music to your ears as a coach or general manager. If these guys need to keep filling these roles, and then you know you don't really have to rebuild as you once thought. Check out Jake's Jakers Dozen at AroundTheOHL.com. Jake, have a great weekend. You as well. Jake Jeffrey in studio on his day off. We've got news next with Jacqueline LaBelle on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
We're still waiting for Team Canada to start announcing their final cuts. There are some Londoners and some London Knights waiting to see whether they are going to stay in Vancouver and Victoria and play at the World Juniors representing their country. So nothing just yet, but just saw a tweet from Matt Cullen, and he is a broadcaster and says that the Owen Tippett suspension for five games for flipping a foam puck into a crowd has now fluctuated back to one game, so he'll be eligible to play for Team Canada if he makes the team. So there's that news. We are going to talk in just a little bit about bomb threat hoaxes and the actual damage that these do. There's got to be a greater punishment, maybe, for something like this, because I don't think the punishment is all that big, but we're going to talk about it. If you go to at Stubbs980 right now on Twitter... I have posted something that you can find on the Taz Show blog that Taz and Jim from FM96 put up. And it is a video that is taken at Hamilton and Egerton in London. You'll recognize the spot. And it's of a thief stealing a bike. And it's not just because the bike is left there on the side of the road, but this guy's getting through a bike lock. And then takes the bike away. So we wanted to check in on bike locks. And Wayne Prince is the owner of South London Cycle and has been nice enough to talk with us today. Wayne, welcome to London Live. How are things? Good, Mike. How are you doing? I am not too bad. A little dumbfounded at the video that everybody keeps seeing about somebody stealing a bike. First of all, that somebody in plain sight would do that. Second of all, that they were able to do it. If if we're to look at bike locks, we still need one, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. You need. You did, definitely will need a lock. The, the the issue is is the quality of the lock that you've got. Um, the the biggie with that one is though. I, I saw the video, Mike, and <laughs> that is in, like, the police came on and said afterwards that, you know, don't put your bike, have your bike in plain sight. This guy, everything that was done was done. Like, he was in plain sight. He was in the middle of the street, like, he had his bike parked. I mean, traffic, they obviously caught it on, you know, like a, a dash cam. So, I mean, I think the guy that locked his bike up did all the right stuff. The problem is the thief this, these days, the thieves these days, their technology has got that much better. And obviously their willingness to do something just in plain sight. I mean, that that takes something right there. Hopefully oh, he yeah. gets that caught. That was crazy. That was crazy. Well, if we're to look then at at least protecting your bike to the point that hopefully that doesn't happen to you, I guess if we look at home security, a lot of home security experts will say, if you make your bike difficult to steal, or in that case, if you make your home difficult to break into, thieves, burglars, they'll go somewhere else. So if, if we were That's to right. use that kind of philosophy, what is a good bike lock? What does it look like? Well, the, the, the typical bike lock is the U-lock. That's probably the, the best protection you can get. It's a heavy, like, basically a loop in shape of a U. And um, they, they vary in price. I mean, you can get those from $19 up to almost $200. So, again, if you buy a cheap one, you're getting $19 of their protection. So the bottom line, like you're saying, is with the house, if you want your bike protected, buy a better lock and then they'll go to the next bike that's got the cheap lock on it, and they'll steal that bike. (laughs) 
Okay, so that's that's obviously because when you go out looking for a bike, if you're buying a bike for the first time, sometimes you do go looking for the cheap lock or you look at what an expensive lock goes for and you say, I don't know if I want to spend that much and you wind up getting the cheaper one. So that's the right. U-lock yeah. is still a good one. The U-lock is still a good one. They're probably you know, The one we carry, like I carry the Abbas line. It's, uh, it's made in Germany. Um, and the biggest thing with their stuff is it's the lock mechanism that they really, you know, hone in on that you can't pick them. And most of the locks these days are, are unpickable. But what's happening these days, it's, the, you know, the guy you saw on the video, he, he wasn't cutting through that with a pair of bowl cutters. This guy had a power grinder with him. And, I mean, a power grinder is going to go through any U-lock, any cable lock, like, I mean, it's, that's just a matter of time. That's going to go that's through your think. front door. Well, that's it. I mean, and the problem is with the technology these guys are using today, they're, they're, you know, they're putting this stuff in a duffel bag, and, you know, everything's battery-operated, so it's not like the guy's going to plug it in and, you know, he just pulls it out of a duffel bag, and your bike's gone. Wayne Prince joining us from South London Cycle as we talk bike locks. So a U-lock, make sure that it is a good U-lock. If you're looking around and you happen to see that your son or your daughter happen to have maybe a chain lock or one of those combination locks, should you say, you know what, we're going to go and do some shopping this weekend. Exactly, especially if you want to keep your bike. Wow. Like it's just, it, you, I can remember as a kid, we used to get those little ones with the combination numbers you line up. And you used to be able to pull on them and line the numbers up and unpick up like you could unlock the bike, you know, probably in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Just by but, figuring uh, out any kind of combination that exactly. might open it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could feel the difference as you pulled on the chain. The, it would get a little looser if you got to the right number. And if you're making an investment on a good bike, which, you know, let's, let's face it, is not going to be $150, you want one that's going to get you around and is going to last, you want to make sure and have that lock. Well, that's it. I mean, you're, if you're paying, I mean, some people these days are paying up, I mean, they're starting these days, you know, $1,000 plus for a good bike. And, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to put a $20 lock on it. Like, you just, you know, spend the money, get a good lock. It's going to help protect you more. But like you say, guys with grinders, you're going to get into them. <laughs> I mean, that's just the problem. Well, then you need that stroke of luck. You need that little yep. bit of hope and uh, keep it in plain sight and hope that somebody catches the guy with the grinder and well, maybe he it. can go somewhere else and, well, and he won't be able to do it I mean, anymore. Yeah. I mean, it was so open. Like, I mean, they've got this guy's face. They, they should, they, this guy should be locked up already. I mean, you know, if people were watching, it happened. Yeah, that's the wild part. Yep. Well, Wayne, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Yep. No problem. Thanks again, Mike. And again, you can see that video. I've tweeted it out. It's on the Taz Show blog on the FM96 Facebook page. But it takes this guy no time whatsoever. It's it's almost frightening how quickly it happens. But it's kind of like a, a dash cam, I guess, taking the video. And he's on the right side of the street. And he just kind of walks up to this bike. And, zit, zit, and all of a sudden, he's on it riding away. So what do you do in a case like that? Well, you hope that somebody can recognize him using the video 
call the police and say, I know that guy, and here's a little bit more information about him. And I guess that's what it comes down to. Circulate the video, and hopefully somebody can say, yeah, I know who that is. And then, I don't know what you get dinged for, because it's it's theft under $5,000, so this is not sending this guy up to Rikers Island, but I don't even think it sends him into the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. But there's got to be something, some sort of deterrent. It's one of those cases where you want to have consequences. One of the best things you can have in this life is consequences. It's not just a rule. It's to actually have a consequence at the end of it, saying, well, look at what you've done. Somebody had taken their bike and locked it up, and it was nice and secure, and they felt good enough about it that they went somewhere else. They probably paid good money for that bike. Because typically you don't steal a bike that's not very good. So they probably paid really good money. Look what Wayne just said. Some bikes, north of a thousand bucks. You want a decent bike, it's not gonna be a hundred and fifty dollars. It's going to be six, seven, eight, nine, twelve hundred bucks. And then you have somebody coming along with a nice little invention. It used to be you needed a power cord for that, so it didn't happen. Now Everything's battery-operated, and zip, zip. This guy, I think it's gone in eight seconds. I, I think they timed it. It's, it's about eight seconds. That's how long it took him to get through this bike lock. So you buy a nice bike, you buy a nice lock, and eight seconds later, some nitwit has come along and taken it away. So here's hoping he gets identified. Please take a look at the video. Maybe you know him. We're going to take a break. Up next, we'll talk about other nitwits. Probably spend a half hour talking about nitwits. We could spend a lot more than a half hour talking about nitwits, couldn't we? I think that word needs to be used more often. Numbskull, nitwit, what's better? We are going to talk about bomb threat hoaxes. This becomes a real issue for police services. And we want to discuss what actually happens, just to lay it out. Not so that you're going to do this, because if you do, you belong where that other guy belongs. You belong in Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. You belong with a criminal record. You shouldn't be doing things like this, because it really creates a problem. And we'll talk about that problem next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Let's talk a bit about hoaxes. You know, you would think that something like a hoax would be a really risky thing to do. Because if you're going to call something in anymore, your number can be identified. You can block it, but you have to think if you're calling certain places... They'd be able to see through that. There's got to be a way to do that. I know that, oh, well, you got to, we need privacy. We have to have our privacy. Okay. I suppose. I mean, I don't want to get into a, a privacy issue debate here because, yes, there are reasons to have privacy. But we have very little of it. If you think you do, look down at your pocket. Do you have a cell phone in your pocket? Then you don't have privacy. They know where you are. And in fact, your location is being sold to companies, so they know what you do, how you move during the course of a day. That's just the way it is. You want to have privacy? Leave your phone at home. In fact, never have a phone. But you would think that things like prank phone calls, they'd be obsolete. Your refrigerator running? Better go catch it. That kind of stuff can't happen anymore. 
because you wind up being able to figure out who it is that's calling you. Well, we had a wave of bomb threats across Canada and the U.S., and the London area was actually touched. There was one incident that Middlesex County OPP had to respond to in Middlesex Centre. There were actually five incidents across Western Region. And to talk a little bit more about what this actually does so that you can understand. And I don't care if you're the person who has never made a bomb threat hoax, because I think that represents 99.999% of the population. Or if you're the nitwit who did or would ever do that, here's information that you need. Please welcome to London Live, former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner. Chief Faulkner, how are things? Very good, sir. How are you? I am interested to know just what happens when a bomb threat hoax is made and how police feel about this. Well, first of all, I I know that from the law enforcement perspective, they really don't like to uh, give much credence uh, media-wise to bomb threats. Uh, because of our um, uh, inclination that it may cause copycats, which quite often it does. But I will say that um, for a a single bomb threat that comes in, it is extremely, extremely labor-intensive for uh, most major police services. Uh, You know, the resources that are required just to, to vacate a building to go through it uh, physically uh, can take some some time. So you'll have you know patrol officers involved. You have a canine unit involved. You could have the explosive uh, demolition team there, forensic uh, forensic officers, and of course traffic officers. And then a follow up could be uh, assigned over to the detective office. So it it is extremely labor intensive. I will say, though, that there is a significant, I believe, significant difference between uh, the person who makes a bomb threat and the person that makes a bomb. And, and so, you know, kind of looking at it historically, most individuals that make bombs uh, don't want to notify people in advance that they've made one. They're, you know, when you look at the Unibomber, uh, Timothy McVeigh, or those... Uh, I think the brothers out of the Boston Marathon, you know, these are bomb makers that want to do as much damage as possible. Most, I will say, not all, but most people that make threats uh, have no uh, inclination to hurt people except cause disruption. And that right there is something that sounds like they can do it. Is the penalty stiff enough for someone who gets caught doing this? Oh, well, you know... they they have changed the criminal code uh, recently. Um, uh, matter of fact, I think this section, uh, last time I looked, it was 372 of the criminal code got updated just a couple of months ago. Uh, and they've made it a dual procedure offense. So, uh, you know, the police can either go by summary conviction, which is, you know, imprisonment of less than six months usually, or indictable, which is, uh, for this, this uh, offense, imprisonment for a term not to exceed two years and or a fine it could be. So whether it's uh, uh, the penalty is the deterrent, I don't know. But but really, you know, most of these threats are caused by, uh, I would say, disgruntled people, people that might have a beef or a complaint, an ex-employee, you know, maybe even angry customer. Definitely uh, some are made by uh, mentally ill persons. And unfortunately, some are made by students 
who want to get out of writing exams. Yeah, and that that gets scary right there. It sure does. That and again, I guess there's no appreciation for the disruption you are causing because forget what is happening with London Police Service or any police service or anybody who is involved in in some way in policing. Look at if it's an exam, the number of flights that could be, you know, could be in jeopardy because something has to be rescheduled. You can't just stop something and say, okay, well, ah, we won't be having that exam anymore. So it never works out in the favor of anybody. No, I mean, it is it is a significant resource upon people. And I will say that, you know, one of the downsides for modern technology is that uh, people have the wherewithal to make these kind of mass threats and uh, uh, get sent uh, from one side of the country to the other very easily. I will say that um, the ability to track specifically through the Internet uh, is a lengthy process, but, but, but can happen. One of the problems, though, might exist if it comes from another country. Uh, then you have issues with uh, uh, international law. Um, but but bomb threats aren't just the, one of the major problems for policing. It's it's just hoax calls in general. You know, Mike. In the first ten months at London Police, I looked at their uh, statistics. They had 171,000 calls to their 911 center, and a third of those aren't emergency calls. Wow. Okay, 171,000 calls I'm, I'm to just their 911 center, and at least a third. A third are not emergencies. That's 57,000 calls, Chief. Yes. 57,000 calls. So dealing with prank bomb calls are just one of the things that law enforcement has to deal with. Is there anything that can be done to to maybe, you know, weed out those calls? Or is that just kind of part of doing business when you're policing? Well, you would hope people would have the common sense to know what an emergency is. Uh, someone breaking in observing a crime in, in process, uh, severe motor vehicle collision in which people are hurt. Uh, but, but many people use 911 for the most stupidest things. Um, you know, they're locked out of their car, um, etc. So, uh, like, 911 is, the, is an emergency call number and is to be used for emergencies only. And that's something that is stressed from time to time. Obviously, people are not picking up on that if this past year we've still got numbers like that. Yep. For sure. All right. Well, Chief Faulkner, thank you so much for talking about this subject with us. We really appreciate it. Take care. That is former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner on hoaxes in general. And Chief Faulkner makes a really good point at the end how easy it is for some people to say, oh, look what's going wrong in my life. Locked out of my house. Yeah. Well, 911. Hi, can you help me? Uh, I'm locked out of my house. You know, you guys have all kinds of things that uh, pick locks and stuff. Can you give me a hand here? That's not what it's for. Or the repeat customers. If you actually make a legitimate call to a police service and you're thinking, look at how long it is for them to get here. First off, if there is a crime being committed, they're going to be there right away. But if there is you know, someone ahead of you or it's something that has happened or is not life-threatening in any way or really threatening at all, yeah, it could take them a while to get there. A lot of times it's because they are dealing with all of those other calls. The line of calls that builds up is pretty incredible. And to get through and make sure everything's okay in each of these different situations, repeat callers, people who are calling just because they want to visit, 
That's it. You know, that's part of policing right now. And somehow that has to be weeded out. But as Chief Faulkner pointed out, how are you supposed to do it? Because it becomes up to the individual. If those calls are being made, this is not the boy who cried wolf that eventually you say, yeah, yeah, we're not coming this time. Forget you. That's not the way policing works. They have to come every time. And so it's up to the person to say, this isn't an emergency, or I shouldn't make that call. Can you lose the right to use 911? Oh, we don't want to do that. Because then if somebody really, yeah, but they've abused it 4,000 times. Oh, but they might still need it. Eventually, there have to be consequences, don't there? Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle will have news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We talked last hour with Rail Winberg about complications from time changes. No, we have to have them. The way that the Earth rotates around the sun kind of precipitates needing different times. Otherwise, some people would have to be up all night. I, it, it wouldn't work. We have our days, we have our nights, we have our time changes. Right now, we're kind of waiting for Team Canada to make those final announcements of cuts to see how many London connections are going to be a part of Team Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championship. And it's out in Victoria, B.C. So typically they get up, they go to breakfast, they may have a meeting or two, and then the guys go back to their rooms, and then they start getting phone calls. And you don't want to get a phone call. If you get a phone call, that means you have to go and talk to somebody, and that typically means you didn't make the team, and they're going to give you a little exit interview, at which time they say, here are the things that you did well. If they're 18 years old, they can say, well, next year, maybe you'll be able to be back. It's really nerve-wracking. And so we're waiting for that to kind of unfold, but there's no telling exactly when it is going to take place. should be soon, but it hasn't been yet. There is a little kind of trepidation in all of this for every one of those players because you've you've been invited, you've made it through to the final camp, and you're you're this close to making Team Canada. It didn't used to be that way. In fact, years ago, they just took the Memorial Cup winner from the year before and said, "Hey, you go to the World Juniors." And that's the way that Canada was represented. Our next guest, in fact, had that happened for him because he was a part of the Memorial Cup champion Cornwall Royals. We'll talk about that. We will talk about the Canada Cup in 1987. We'll talk Winnipeg Jets coaching. Hall of Famer Dale Howarchuk is going to join us next on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Coming up tonight on 980 CFPL, we have the London Knights and the Niagara Ice Dogs. Coverage starts at 6.30. Rocky Farr will be on hand making yet another check presentation. He's donated $55,000 in the last three years. That has benefited all kinds of hockey organizations in this area, from the London Devilettes to the London Blizzard to George Bray to the South Bandits. It's uh, it's pretty generous. And so we started the day talking about some hockey stories. We're still waiting for Team Canada to be announced. What do you think? A few more hockey stories? This week on Around the OHL, we had a chance 
to sit down with Dale Howarchuk, Hall of Famer. He's currently the head coach of the Barry Colts, but he's played at the World Juniors back before they had a national junior team. And he's also played in some pretty spectacular international events like the 87 Canada Cup. So he's going to tell some stories about the World Juniors. He'll tell a story about the Canada Cup. But we actually started off talking about the fact that it's definitely winter in Barrie, Ontario. It's snowy, but that's uh, Ontario and Canada in the winter. <laughs> You're a guy who played so many years in Winnipeg. How does this compare to Winnipeg in terms of winters? They they would have arrived, what, around the end of August? <laughs> well, it's cold and sunny anyways, but... You had either had you had a almost a fur coat and a parka and two options, depending <laughs> if you're dressing up or not. <laughs> What's it like to see the success of the Jets right now, and and how that city has has come out and and just eaten them up? Well, I think it's it's been like <clears throat> excuse me, it's been like that ever since the team came back, and then of course, uh, you know, I think now the way they built the team and you know they had a lot of high draft picks that have turned out. Whenever that happens, uh, you know, that's usually, uh, you know, a good formula for success. Well, and one of those high draft picks uh, came through the Barry Colt system and, and Mark Shifley as well. That's a guy who uh, came to your team. You know, he was a seventh-round pick a, a bit later than most and really caught the attentions of NHL scouts. Uh, you coaching him, when did you sort of realize that, you know, Shifley might be a special player? Well, we ended up trading for him in a deal because, you know, he was drafted by Saginaw mm-hmm. and uh so he was part of a deal. <laughs> we didn't know if he would come or not because he was uh, almost committed to go to Cornell. But I saw him play tier two, and right away I liked him. I knew uh, his skating wasn't that great then, though, but uh, his instincts and uh, his ability to, to find people, and he was uh, he was a hound dog on the puck. Uh, I liked a lot of his attributes. And, you know, we were, we were able to convince him to come, and uh, right away he liked this kid because... He knew our team inside out. He knew we had traded for his rights, and he knew our roster up and down. He knew if he came where he'd be slotted in potentially. And so right away you're like, oh, man, this kid wants to make it. So he's uh, he's had that desire ever since. And um, I've always said, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just a lack of, uh, of growth, you know. They're still young, and then all of a sudden uh, – if you feel like they're going to put the effort in, uh, you know they're going to get better at their skating or whatever. Dale Howarchuk with us. Dale, how has coaching changed in the game of hockey since you stepped behind the bench? Is it any different? Is it exactly the same? Um, well, there's always changes. I saw it, you know, even as a player, you know, through junior and the NHL. Uh, you know, the generations change and uh, life just changes and you need to, you have to move with it. If you don't, uh, it'll pass you by. And, uh, you know, it's no different, you know, outside the ring. You know, there's not too many people without cell phones now. And there's many years we didn't have cell phones. So you got to move on, right? And, uh, um, you know, I think as a coach, you try and take a little bit of what you really like from a lot of guys and, uh, you know, remember certain situations when maybe things weren't going well how certain coaches reacted or, or when they were going great and how they reacted. So, But you got to read your team, and uh, you have a different team every year. You have different personalities, and, you know, whenever, you know, there could be a lot of guys, you know, feeling good about themselves, but there's always a few not, and those are the ones you want to keep going. You know, you want to get them turned around because, uh, 
you know, when, when guys are struggling and we can get them back turned around, then that just helps the whole group. And uh, so that's always the challenge of coaching uh, every day. Okay, who's who's not feeling it right now? we got to get them going. And so I think as a as a coach, uh, you know, and, you know, you're part of the team, you gotta you got to recognize that and you want to keep the guys flying high, keep them going, but you also want to get the guys that aren't maybe going so great, you know, get them moving to another level. This year, you've got some great talent on your team and young talent. Give us the the hope of the Barry Colts for the rest of the way. What do you want to see your team do? Well, you know, it's the old. You know, everybody hears that you want to get better every day, and that's what you do in junior, right? You know, you want to learn from your mistakes, and uh, you know, as a group, uh, you know, you go from your goalies to your defense to your forwards, and then. You know, you have your special teams units, and, you know, if you can keep improving those, you know, every month, then uh, you're headed in the right direction and where it takes you, you know, like, I mean, I won two Memorial Cups as a player, and, you know, we didn't know where it was taking us, but, you know, two years in a row, it took us right to the end. So, you know, you just, you can't look at the long picture, you just look at the short picture every day, and then uh, all of a sudden you're, you're in the middle of a long picture, and you're like, hey, that went pretty well. What were those teams like in Cornwall? Um, the first year our captain was, uh, Dan Daou and, uh, and, um, you know, Scott O'Neill came on that year with me as a rookie, Bobby Hall Jr. We were rookies and, uh, it was kind of a, a, you know, nobody really gave us a shot. And then all of a sudden we just gelled as a team. We had three pretty solid lines, two that could score, one could check. And, uh, we got a hot goalie in the playoffs and, you know, back in the day, you know, we really didn't make, uh, uh, you know, a big splash as far as picking up players. And back in the queue, they used to just buy players and load up one team. And uh, we upset Sherbrooke in the final round. And the next thing you know, we're in the Memorial Cup, uh, you know, against Peterborough and Regina and Doug Wickenheiser. And we, you know, kind of were the underdogs and ended up uh, with the trophy at the end. So it's like, we, we weren't worried about it. We just We just played hard every game. And and I can remember that final series against Sherbrooke. Like, we stole the first game in their building and then uh, come back to ours, sneak one out, go back to their building, get blown out, come back, sneak one out, go back to their building, get blown out, and then we snuck out, you know, game six. So it was uh, – but it didn't worry us. Like, we got blown out so bad So back in Sherbrooke. Like, that, you know, that could have really derailed us, but we still felt good about our group, and uh, it took us right to the end. And that's that journey that you were talking about, you know, from a coach's perspective, is you get better every day and enjoy the day-to-day stuff. So even, you know, all these years later, some things don't change about the game. No, no, absolutely not. Like, uh, you know, some, some days go bad. Some games you just got to write off. I don't know what happened there. You know, everything just went wrong. And, uh, but you can't sit there and dwell, dwell on it. You want to learn from it and uh, regroup. We always talk about that when we feel like we've had a poor game. Like, hey, let's rebound and let's rebound fast. That's what the beauty in this business is you get to play another game and and uh, rebound from what you didn't like. You got a chance to play internationally, to play in that, that, that most famous Canada Cup in 1987. It's World Junior time. You were playing on Canada's World Junior team before it really was the World Juniors that it is today. What was it like being a part of Team Canada on one of those first World Junior teams? Um, well, it was great. We were all excited. You know, the defending uh, Memorial Cup champs uh, got the, to represent Canada at the next World Juniors, and we, we went to Germany. And uh, it was probably because of us, you know, we didn't do that well that, uh, you know, all of a sudden uh, 
Hockey Canada came evolved and uh, created a world junior team, you know, coast to coast. And uh, uh, but the experience was great, but we were overmatched. You know, the best players. So I, I, I remember I was rated to go number one in the draft. And I remember playing the Russians in Germany, and I was like, oh my god, we didn't even touch the puck. Like these guys were so good, and it was like, you know what, we got. I, I personally, I was like. I got, I'm supposed to be number one. And some of these guys were just like whipping around us like nothing. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta take my work ethic to another level. And, and I think our whole group did too, because that second year, you know, we were kind of up and down through the year. We had some good talent and uh, actually Dougie Gilmore came along too. And uh, that year we really rode through the playoffs and ended up winning the Memorial cup again. But the world junior experience was probably good for our group because you know, we thought we were pretty good, and then we realized that, hey, there's another level we can reach. And uh, and then, obviously, Hockey Canada felt that, too, with the program. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's in good hands now, and it's an exciting time of the year. But uh, it's a great thrill as a player. You know, it's probably one of your first opportunities to represent Canada on a, on a major stage. And, uh, you know, the hype, the pressure that goes with it, uh, you just, as a player, that's, that's probably why you signed up to play hockey in the first place, because that, that was fun. Let's leave it on this. You get to go into Hamilton now, and you get to walk into that building where you won that 87 Canada Cup, where you were on the ice as that last rush was going along. What do you remember from those moments in that Game 3 against the <laughs> Soviet Union? Well, I remember I was playing mostly with you know Brent Sutter, Rick Tocca, Brian Prop, and we, we were really having a great game. We scored a few goals to get us back in the game, and then the last face-off in our end there, uh, Keenan, Mike Keenan, the coach at the time, told me to take Mark Messier off because Mark was tired really at the end of a shift, and so I go on the ice, and he really didn't say anything else. And I look at Wayne, and I, I got Gretzky and Lemieux on the wings, and, but I look at Wayne, I said, Wayne, you want to take the draw? And he's like, not a chance. And then I look at Mario, and Mario's like, uh, no, no, that, uh, I'm a right shot. That's not my side. So just before I take the draw, I'm like, I, I kind of skate to Mario and say, look, Mario, I'm just tying him up because I didn't want to lose this draw clean. So I'm just tying him up, which is an indicator to him to come in and pick up the loose puck, which which he did, and uh, he got it up to Gretz, and uh, Igor Kravchuk pinched, and... Uh, we got by them, and you know that was a, that was a huge goal, obviously. But uh, it's funny; I didn't even know if I was going out there to take the face off, right? So at the end of the day, it was like come up with a last minute plan, and uh, it worked out pretty good. Amazing. Well, Dale, congratulations on the Hall of Fame career as a player. Congratulations on what you've done so far as a coach. We really appreciate the time today. That is Dale Howardchuck. You can hear the entire interview. It's actually longer than that on our Around the OHL podcast. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your favorite shows. It just shows that even at life's highest levels of anything, it's all just made up. It's all just fly by the seat of your pants. You know, we go through life every day, and you kind of make the best decisions that you can, and you hope that things work out. You've got elite hockey players who understand the game better than anybody else, You've got the best of the best on the ice, and you would think, well, they they just naturally, instinctively know what to do. 
And it's a face-off with just over a minute left, and Dale Howardchuk is saying, as he looks at Wayne Gretzky, do you want to take this face-off? And Wayne Gretzky's looking back going, no, I do not want to take this face-off, because you don't want to lose it. The way the game had been going, if you lose that face-off, a slap shot from the blue line, that probably goes in, and the Soviet Union wins the 87 Canada Cup. And then he looks at Mario Lemieux who says, I'm a right-handed shot, I can't take that draw. <laughs> the most perfect excuse and so they just kind of made it up on the spot here's what we're going to do and it winds up working perfectly which hey sometimes in life that happens too thanks again to everybody who was a part of this morning's initiative in yet another chorus radio london toy drive this was originally organized by taz from fm 96 and now you've got fm 96 and country 104 and fresh radio and global news radio 980 cfpl all involved in it but the stream of vehicles the mountains of toys good toys i it was hard taking them to the trucks because you'd think i just want to try this out can i just try can i just go around to the side of the truck here and just See how this thing works just for a second? There's a lot of good stuff in there, but it's going to the best place of all, to kids who need it and who need a smile at this time of year. We're going to take a final break on London Live. We'll come back to close out the show in just a moment. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay, I've taken this tiny little shovel, and I've been able to dig to the bottom of why Canada's World Junior Team has not been unveiled. They are still going to play. It's It's the final day of cuts, and normally they just keep this for the final day of cuts. This year they're going to play a final exhibition game against the U Sports All-Stars that is actually going to get underway at 5 o'clock Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific in Victoria, B.C., and so they'll play that. And then they will make the final cuts. They don't usually do it this way. But, then again, most countries haven't even started their preliminary or final camp for the World Juniors. The U.S. opens theirs tomorrow. Sweden opens theirs tomorrow. So Canada's the only team that kind of does it way in advance. And by the time all the other ones are starting, they already have their team picked. And then they go through a lot of team bonding. So we're not going to know this until tonight until during the broadcast between the London Knights and the Niagara Ice Dogs. But we'll make sure and have all of the details about Nick Suzuki and Isaac Ratcliffe and the three London Knights, Evan Bouchard and Alex Formanton and Liam Foody, during the broadcast. We have news coming up next with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick. Thank you to Jacqueline Carbone, and thank you to Winmar. Bringing the show to you, your restoration specialist. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.